The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. think that we are in control of our own lives, but what if, one day, that control ended? How would you cope as you fell down the rabbit hole into the underworld? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and saxophone, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's symposium covers the 1945 suspense drama Detour, directed by Edgar Ulmer and starring Tom Neal and Anne Savage. My guest is Paul Morris, and you join us, lost in a desert of our own making. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well for January. Good, good. So, what can you tell me about old-fashioned double features? <laughs> um... A little bit more than I could have done a couple of months ago. I was vaguely aware that back in the day, pretty much before my time, there were main features and support features, an A film and a, and a B movie to go with it. Though obviously it had pretty much died out by the 70s, hadn't it? Yes, I um, think so. I was recently introduced to the concept of something called a double feature, which I was told, I don't know if I've got this right, was too... For, short shortish a pictures not necessarily of a lower standard in the way that a b picture would be but they was they were two shorter films deliberately made to be shown together to give the audience uh, better value for money is that is that true or was it always a one long one short i think it was normally the case that the the a picture was sl- slightly longer had better production standards bigger stars and the b picture was something on a tighter budget with people you hadn't heard of mm. and that was usually cobbled together relatively quickly. Um, you are, I'm sure, familiar with the quota quickies yeah. and um, other such things churned out uh, by uh, production companies at the time and thrown into into cinemas by rank and now churned out in packs of four by um, discerning DVD distributors. <laughs> Ealing comedies of the 1930s and such. Yeah. Oh, there was a brief revival of that in the early 90s, wasn't there? The films such as um, Blame It on the Bellboy. But it didn't really take off this brave attempt to, to revive uh, the genre. I, I think one film on its own doesn't count as a revival. Oh, no. Um, Perhaps it, I was being Bell... facetious. <laughs> I mean, and the problem there is Blame It on the Bellboy is filmed on location in Italy with recognisable actors. So it's got the uh, production standards of, a B pic- of an A picture, rather. But it's quite short. Mm. It's still it's still exercising us listeners after several months. Well, uh, attention to the podcast was drawn to, by um, Mark Herman, its writer director, who um, was put onto it and um, responded on Twitter. But it was hard to tell whether or not he liked what we said. 
Yes, I'm not going to probe that any further. <laughs> I'm going to assume you, you can probably you can assume he did, and I'll assume he didn't. That will balance it out. So they'll quote a quickies, and I've also discovered uh, recently there was something called Poverty Row in America. Was that the American equivalent? Well, quote a quick is American as well. I tend to think of that as a British thing. The quote of quickies were British because they were films produced, I think, as part of the uh, ED levy, which meant that um, a certain uh, number of films in uh, British cinemas had to be British productions, which meant then that you could churn out very cheap British-funded uh, films, and they would get released. And it was almost a license to print money in that... You know, you could you could churn out really any old crap, and be confident that it would actually get shown and put on the circuit. Um, the Poverty Row producers in the US are, are are rather different in that they weren't taking advantage of any kind of regulation like that. It was just that there was so much appetite for content. Um, they were the the quibby of their day. <laughs> um, it was you know a a smash and grab type raid for money. Uh, with stuff thrown together as quickly as possible. And uh, did TV kill off that art form? TV was... I mean, TV eventually killed off the idea of the the evening out of the movies where you had the, the two features and the, the cartoon and the newsreel and, and even the comedy short was going the way of the dodo by the end of the 40s. Um, but I think that the... Uh, I mean, I was, I've actually been talking to my mother about this who... You know, regularly went to the cinema in the 50s and remembers this all very clearly. Um, and she talked about how uh, Psycho was a major sea change because um, Alfred Hitchcock would not allow anyone into the cinema after the film had started. Mm. Because it was common to just turn up at the cinema, whatever was showing, and just watch whatever was on until the whole programme looped around again, until you got back to the point where... You came in. This is where we came in, effectively. That's, I think that's where that phrase comes from. That, you know, three quarters of an hour into the A picture or where, whatever, you'd now seen the whole show and it was time to go home. But with Psycho, no. The movie has started. You have to wait for the hour and 45 minutes or however long Psycho is until you can go into the cinema. You have to watch the film from the start or not at all. And they started posting up the times when the movie was starting. And that's what started that, the idea of regularly scheduled cinema showings mm. rather than just turning up and starting to watch you know, whenever yes I can remember that you were allowed into cinemas at odd times <laughs> when I was younger and you could sort of hang around if you wanted to but it wasn't it wasn't a done thing was it no. you're not that old Paul <laughs> I <laughs> just um, it feels like a different world I mean, there were probably, st- I mean, Saturday morning features, uh, still running when I was very young, were along those lines, where there was a cartoon at a, a children's film foundation film that would usually run about an hour, and maybe a, a you know a, a creaky old serial episode or something like that. So it's kind of imitating the old uh, cinema programme, but just in a condensed format and just for kids. Um, and that might have, you know, depending on the cinema, might have been fairly loose about... Um, letting people in after the show had started, but I think um, by the time you were old enough to go to the cinema, I think that was the, yes. You're, you're, I, I, that was that was not the common situation anymore. No, your main point is that uh, 
there were scheduled times. And I don't remember an era when that didn't exist. It's strange. It's very annoying. I feel like I read an article the other day which um, also covered the, the end of the rolling program era and the start of scheduled start times. And I didn't remember it being psycho, but I will take your word for it that it was psycho that, that changed things. With an edict from Mr. Hitchcock himself. So, Detour um, was a, a film that had only come to my attention very recently, but I can't remember how. It's though it's it's somehow it's achieved a kind of um, uh, what's the phrase? Renaissance. Critical mass. Oh, I see. Finally, uh, a, a, a critical mass of um, awareness of it. So not so much the, uh, that it not so much that it was once in favour, fell out of favour, and returned to favour, but it's taken sixty years to get into favour at all. Well, it, when it was first released, it was you know another B movie. Uh, I think it was sort of relatively well reviewed um, for, by the major press, and uh, it was released to television relatively quickly and turned up on um, local TV stations all over the US. And I think over time it gradually developed a, a degree of interest and following, particularly with that generation of filmmakers who learned their craft from watching older movies, the the, the movie brats of the 1970s, uh, Scorsese, Coppola, that crowd. They grew up watching movies like this on their local TV stations. And the film slowly gathered increasing levels of um, acclaim until... Um, more recently, it's um, been inducted into the uh, National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Um, mm. And uh, Roger Ebert added it to his um, list of great movies, in which he says, This movie from Hollywood's Poverty Row, shot in six days, it wasn't, filled with technical errors, not really, and ham-handed narrative, starring a man who can only pout and a woman who can only sneer, should have faded from sight soon after it was released in 1945. And yet it lives on, haunting and creepy, an embodiment of the guilty soul of film noir. No one who has seen it has easily forgotten it. The first thing I did after you invited me to watch this film with you was to um, was to check out that review. And I got halfway through the first sentence, <laughs> up to the point should have been forgotten immediately after its release, and thought, oh dear. <laughs> but um, yeah, as you say, it's, the rest of the review is quite glowing. Films like and this, these kinds of film noir um, programmers were almost literally ten a penny. And yet this one somehow has just captured people's imagination and is now regarded as a model of film noir. It contains all the the classic elements. You know, the um, man at the end of his tether, uh, the manipulative, beautiful woman, um... The hardboard narration. The hardboard narration, absolutely. The chiaroscuro lighting, and there are some there are some lighting effects which are so far beyond what you would expect from, you know, a cheap thrown together, you know, backyard show, that you might expect this to be. It's. Could you explain chiaroscuro lighting for those of us? <laughs> I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, the scene early on in the diner where. The lighting changes from yep. a standard lit set to then focusing down on um, uh, the main character Al as his narration starts and he stares off into the distance. And it cha- it's 
it's quite theatrical in a way where it goes from standard lighting down to almost just a spotlight. And I that, was that, that use of darkness and shadow and 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 high contrast black and white is, I, I believe that's what's called as chiaroscuro. I was very struck by that effect. I mean, it's very simple in some one sense, but it's also been it's not just been thrown together. It's been very it's very painterly the effect. It almost you know flips completely what you're looking at. And you, the first time it happened, my my eyes couldn't quite take in whether there'd been a crossfade to another setting because it, it, it produced such a dramatic change. Uh, the other interesting thing is, is the um, is that fade in and out of the different lighting styles, which happens several times, is that the only visual clue we get that we're entering a flashback via narration? We don't get a wibbly-wobbly screen or any of the other cues that you often get. No, or... nothing's, nothing as complex as that. It's It's just simple changes in lighting and editing. And that's all. The film wasn't made in six days. It was more like a month. But even so, it's a lot of the time they just go for something simple. What's what's simple here? Oh, we just change the lighting slightly. Fine, do that. No, we don't have time for wibbly wobbly screens. Just just like just fade it. It's fine. No one's really thinking that they're making anything that will last. They're just thinking, oh, this will do. This is fine. It doesn't look bad or amateurish. It's it's good enough. And yet, under the pressure of a tight deadline and a low budget, they make creative leaps that I think work quite brilliantly. I'm not normally normally a huge fan of older Hollywood movies. I find them that to usually have dated quite badly or be relatively simplistic or banal. But Detour really struck me. I found it quite... Ebert was right. It sticks with you. There's just something about it that you're watching a man living through his own nightmare. Hmm. Something that, that something that couldn't be avoided. Something that is completely outside of his control as he's trapped in this downward spiral. And I think it it just catches that that instinct of what if for no reason at all your life went totally out of control and there was nothing you could do about it. If that's definitely the face value reading of the what we're being presented with, isn't it? And you're right; it's it is told with such a slow, creeping sense of what ultimately looks like inevitability. Every every tiny little wrong step. Not that the, <laughs> these aren't wrong steps that he makes in any sense that we he could have been expected to know he was doing the wrong thing. But every every tiny little grinding of the gears, it's pushing him downwards. Just feels. It's not that there are sudden um, dramatic shifts from the good life to the nightmare that he ends up in. It's just like t- slow tightening the screw over 60 minutes, isn't it? Yeah. And so you're not quite sure how the hell you got here. Um, one problem, just before you leave the, the topic of B pictures, one problem I might have is context, because I don't, I haven't seen, if this is a really good example of one, I don't feel like I've seen many bad ones. So I wouldn't necessarily be able to comment on why this is better is well, it if if you were to say compare it to the better known um film noirs the ones that are really famous classics i'm thinking of things like the maltese falcon or the big sleep hmm. the sort of the really legendary stuff i think it's i think you can rank it alongside those quite easily um 
as I said, this is not nearly as lavish a production. It doesn't contain any actors or any crew members who I've ever heard of. <laughs> but there's, it just catches you. There's an element of of resonance to it that I think it carries over from so, from those those other bigger names. So if we could uh, identify and encapsulate what it is that's special about this that makes it deserve to be ranked alongside the be- the greats of the genre, we could then imagine that this film without those elements, and that would be what a typical B movie noir would look like. So it's if that's sorry if that's a bit conceptual, but <laughs> it's it's what this film would have been like if it was just some, as I say, banal run of the mill space filler that would exist for no other reason today as you know propping open a door at the offices of Talking Pictures TV. I might come on to this later, but I feel like there's a if I had to have one attempt at thinking what's in dif- different about it there's a sheen of naturalism over it the way people don't always act like in the way that um cliched fictional characters do that stereotypical or archetypal characters do there are lots of little surprises in the way they behave every time you think it might be about to take a, a step into the normal cliched melodramatic setting it doesn't do it which is not to say that there isn't ever melodrama, but it comes at moments when you're not expecting it, rather than the points at which you think, oh, I know what's going to happen here. Mm. But anyway, if I can if I can spot any as we go through, I'll, I'll mention them. The film begins with a man walking on a highway at night. Um, he's trying to get a, a lift to Reno, Nevada. And he enters a roadside diner and he's able to get an offer from a man of a ride going north um, although he asks him about why he wouldn't want to go west to California our man is a bit touchy and doesn't want to be rushed as he's drinking his coffee and someone puts music on the jukebox and the man gets very angry and he doesn't want to hear a song like that this jolly big band sound so we have this immediate mystery of this character. Why doesn't he want to travel to California? Why, what is it about this music that's making him so angry? He's just walked in out of the desert, uh, but clearly has this past to him. And when we have the, the first lighting effect, we move into the narration and flashback of how he came to be there. He had been a pianist uh, performing in a band in a nightclub in New York, and was in a relationship with the nightclub singers named Sue. And he describes them as two ordinary healthy people. <laughs> yes. hmm. um, when two ordinary healthy people get together, you have an ordinary healthy... What does he say? Relationship. Except, yeah. Is it? <laughs> well, Sue's very pessimistic about their future together. She doesn't want to marry until um, they become successful. And um, there's a scene where they're, they're talking while walking home through the fog. And I think, well, to begin with, I doubt New York is ever that foggy. <laughs> but also, this is a really a really nice choice of how can we have this scene really atmospheric and also do it cheaply? Yeah. So just have a bunch of fog in there. Not have to go outside at all, let alone go to New York. 
yeah, it, it covers up any deficiencies in the the the, the set or the location, and it That's... already it's it's feeling like uh, you know, these you know, existential French dramas of <laughs> people walking through uh, voids. Yes, there are less artistic ways of saving money. It's also that that conversation in the fog is the first time we get, I think, the the wipes that transition between scenes, which he makes a lot of use of. But they're not even between scenes. He's cut one long conversation down into several very short snippets with wipes, which are much closer together than you would normally get. In yes, I thought um, that was interesting. Al, our character, thinks that Hollywood's just a a folly you know there's it's uh, it's a, it's just a dream it's just a, a, a fugazi um and this made me think of uh, this situation made me think of the quote from uh godard which is that he read that all a film needs to succeed is a man a woman and a gun but it turns out that he was actually misquoting dw griffith who said the public demands a girl and a gun that is enough to ensure that the film is successful so griffith has taken the man as red yes the gun and the girl and the gun are additional elements all films contain men yes um but it's, it's interesting it, that um that uh, al isn't happy with the club and also isn't happy with the idea of going to Hollywood. I mean, at the time, on my first viewing, it, I identified with him you know, reasonably closely. I thought, yeah, I wouldn't be having that club either. No, I, no, you're right. I mean, going to Hollywood's a bit, a bit of a stretch. It's a pipe dream. But when you watch it again, you think, is he ever happy? Is he, is he creating this misery for himself? It's, I'm not quite sure where I... Because after having watched the whole thing... He seems self-pitying. I start to see him as self-pitying right from the beginning um, and not that keen to do anything about his situation. I'm still trying to work out ultimately what, whether I think, how closely I think we're supposed to identify with him. Is it possible then that his whole situation is one of karma? That he, he doesn't want to stay where he is, but he doesn't want to change. So he's forced into a situation where he has to act. He has to hmm. um, do something to avoid the situation getting any worse. That would be it. Yeah. Al kisses Sue goodnight, but he's actually kissing her goodbye. He's a bit petulant in that moment, I thought. <laughs> he is. As Ebert, as Ebert says, he does pout an awful lot. <laughs> and he goes back to playing the piano while thinking. And we have that uh, almost like a textbook version of that test where you look at uh, someone with a neutral expression and then you cut to a bowl of soup. Oh no, it's the other way around. You cut to a bowl of soup and you cut to someone with a neutral expression and they seem hungry. <laughs> the, uh, the image is providing the seed of how you read this neutral face. And it's the same thing with his narration describing all his feelings but his face remains blank as he's playing the piano. Mm. And it's a, like a trick there of, you can see these emotions in his face because you're told this is what he's thinking. I did 
When I watched it the second time, I, I think the only time he ever looks happy is when he's on stage playing piano. But I don't know how relevant that is because he doesn't always look happy when he's playing piano. So it's, <laughs> it seems, but um, it's certainly true that he gets some joy out of it sometimes. There's also a bit of clever direction there where as he's playing, you never see his hands on the keyboard. Even though it's filmed in long shot and his hands would be visible, but his hands are always just blocked by something, yeah, the weight yeah. are going by everything. So you never actually see that he's not really playing. The actor who um, who plays Al, Tom Neal, had quite a colourful background. Um, he started out as a boxer and um, was a, a regular actor in B pictures. Um, it, later in the 40s, he got into a relationship that provo- proved to be extremely stormy to the extent that he uh, got into an open fist fight with uh, his wife's other lover um, which led to the other man with having a smashed cheekbone a broken nose and a concussion and this led to Tom Neal being pretty much blacklisted from Hollywood he um, did manage to get some more acting gigs and eventually gave it up to become um, a landscape gardener (laughs) <laughs> at which point he married a receptionist and then four years later uh, the police were called when it was found that she'd been shot dead um, he was uh, eventually convicted of involuntary manslaughter and served six years in prison involuntary manslaughter? yes did the gun make him do it? well he might not have deliberately shot her right also it could have been like a plea bargain to um, avoid um the death penalty, which prosecutors had actually been seeking. Mm. But he served, as I say, six years in prison and was released in uh, the early 70s and um, went back to his gardening business for the rest of his short life. I saw a reference to the fact that he had a son who who <laughs> played the same role in a remake of Detour in the 90s. Did you look into that? Yes, I believe that so. Seems... Um if I was his son, I don't think I'd want to follow in my father's footsteps too closely. It could be tempting fate. It was um, it was his only film role, though. Hmm. As far as I know, his son is both still alive and not a murderer. Or a landscape gardener. Or a landscape gardener. I mean, what could be worse than that? <laughs> I speak as someone who used to work in a landscape gardening company. I speak as somebody who has made a living as a gardener at times it's good good healthy outdoor exercise it's 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 nice work if you enjoy it have we taken a bit of a detour here i apologize um al gets a ten dollar tip and um he's still cynical about it and refers to it as just a piece of paper crawling with germs that's a great um film wire line isn't it his um his dialogue is so salty in that classic hardboard style, that it doesn't quite, I've now realised, it doesn't quite fit with what seems to be a fairly easygoing man when we see him in context. It's only when his thoughts running through his own head that are quite this bitter. But I suppose this is all him looking back from where the story ends, so that he is forgiven a certain amount of cynicism. Yes. He calls Sue in Los Angeles and... um... She's happy to hear from him and says that she's currently working as a hash slinger. <laughs> which I looked up at. It just means that she's a server in a restaurant. Right. Good. Um, 
but he's going to come and see her, and then they're going to get married. Mm. And she seems very keen. So this is an, an unusual moment of happiness, the last one he'll ever have. Mm. And because he has effectively no money, he's going to hitchhike across America. And in the narration, he refers to money as the stuff you never have enough of. Yeah. Which is true for him, but also proves to be true. It's rather foreshadowing the attitude of all the other characters that he's going to bump into for the rest of the film. Yes. And indeed his life. <laughs> um, he's traipsing across open desert, and he looks in a terrible state. His, his clothes are all shabby, and it's a very unromantic view of you know riding the rails almost yes it's not that kind of road trip movie is it no but he manages to flag down a driver in the desert and um, gets a ride and this gentleman's name we find out is charles haskell jr um he takes a pill as he's driving and in narration al says oh no it's it's a mistake ever to speak first uh which makes me think that he's been taking lessons in um, management consultation. (laughs) But um, it turns out that Haskell has scratches on the back of his hand. And um, he says, oh, I got that from the most dangerous animal in the world, a woman. And he also has a long scar on his arm, which he says was from a a duel that he fought. When he was a child, he um, fought a duel with a... and a school friend using two swords his father had on the wall he put out the other kid's eye are they Franco-Prussian dueling swords or something ridiculous like that isn't it? Possibly yes Um, but he ran away from home and has never been home since Mm. so again it's it folds into that world view of everyone's everyone's running from something everyone's uh, Everyone's out for themselves. It's quite interesting because um, Roberts is just at the beginning of his journey, which he thinks is going to be brief, and then he'll be back to the good life again. The first person he meets is somebody who's been running for 15 years. So that may be a bit of foreshadowing, that this this sort of journey isn't going to be as simple as he might have hoped. And um, Haskell explains that he's a bookie who is going to Los Angeles for a, a race, and he's perfectly happy to give... Uh, Al a uh, ride for the whole way if they share the driving and that kind of thing so they're driving at night uh, they've switched so that Al's behind the wheel now and Haskell's taking a nap and Al's feeling optimistic you know he's got a ride for the rest of the way his travelling companion seems like a nice guy and he starts daydreaming of Sue singing and (laughs) with the shadows of musicians behind him and that scene really reminds me of Fantasia with the the silhouettes of the musical instruments and the the performers. It's again, it's probably a very simple effect, but it's the filmmakers that Ed, we haven't even mentioned the director's name yet, Edgar Ulmer, doing just that bit more than you need to. He doesn't need to do this dream sequence, but I thought, well, no, let's do that because there's, there's an easy way of doing it. So with the lighting, so we can do the, the lighting effect. That won't take a few minutes just to set up. It's just going a little bit further than you need to to create something a little bit more distinctive. But uh, it starts to rain, and so 
uh, with the top open. Al pulls over to put the top up, but Haskell seemingly won't wake up. And as in the narration, Al recalls that he was going to be heading for a new destination. In the present, Al opens the door and Haskell immediately tumbles out and falls hard and hits his head on a rock. Mm. And he's dead. (laughs) That's some bad luck. If he was just dead, because if he was just dead, if he'd just had a heart attack or something, then he might have got away with uh, it looking like an accident. But it's the rock that really seals his fate, isn't it? That. Yeah, it's it's just pure chance. They just happen to be a rock in the worst possible place. Mm, that's fate moving its huge hand. So in the narration, Al runs through the situation that people would think that he was going to be killed for the money because he's a bookie and he has money on him. And so he takes the decision to drag the body down into the gully, but he needs the car. And therefore he needs the money that Haskell has on him for food and lodgings and petrol money. He needs his driver's license. He needs his clothes. He's already fulfilling all the prejudices that the police would think of him. Just, he's not killing him because he needed those things. He killed him, or he's dead, and now he's just taking them anyway. It's a very cold, cruel universe I'm just being a, a gullible a gullible viewer here, am I? You are supposed to think that his explanation sounds reasonable. It's, it's logicked through very clearly, step by step by step. He outlines his decision-making. He, he outlines why that he knows this is going to look suspicious. And all, you can, all the viewer can do is sympathise and go along with it. He's You're in not... the middle of the desert. And so... It would be insane not to take the car, to not take some money, um, not to take his clothes. If 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 he's stopped by the police for whatever reason, he's going to have to pass for Haskell. So he needs his driver's license. The fact that that they look very vaguely alike is convenient, and that they are of the same build. So Eddie, uh, so that Al can wear his clothes. It, it is like. Fate has decided this is going to happen. It put Haskell down in his path and put all these things in place just to just to put Al in this situation where he has no choice. Yeah, and because it's such a go along with this, such an absurd, unpredictable event that happens out of the blue to somebody who we've come to think of as a kind of everyman, it does make you think, what, what would I do? If you're tempted to think, well, hang on, <laughs> that's a bad decision, Al. You, you do have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? The only one I could think of was he drags Haskell's body back into the car and he keeps driving until he finds a police station. And he goes inside and explains everything that's happened. Interesting. There you go. See, it must have been... The way it's been, the way it's dramat- that makes sense. The way it's dramatised um, prevented me from thinking that at the time, because you're guided down a particular route as seemingly the only ineffable conclusion. So, because the the film's that's... thesis is that this is the only yeah, this is the only choice that he could have made. But but he's also been shaped by his own experience and by his own, presumably his own experience with the police and his own cynical worldview. Well, the police won't believe me. 
Yeah. I I have I have to lie because they won't believe me if I'm telling the truth. They'll think that I'm lying because he lives in a world where everyone lies, where everyone is incredibly cynical and selfish. I gather the orig- there were some reports that the original script was longer and that the director cut it down to just the essentials. I do wonder if something like a just a vignette of his experiences with the police earlier on might have you know, really sold that moment even more than, than it already is. Or maybe some imagined sequence where he he does where he as I suggest he does go to the police and say, This is what's hap- what's happened and they immediately don't believe him and lock him up and maybe maybe he races through his trial in his own imagination. Yeah. But like I say, I'm happy with the way it's done. It all seems very plausible to me. Uh, the reason um, I mention this is because some... <laughs> I'll just mention this here. Some reviewers, some commentators, seem to think that he's possibly an unreliable narrator. Now, I didn't want to get into a big discussion about that just yet. But I just wanted to check that I'm not alone in having been happy to take him at face value as we go along this journey with him. I I don't like the trope of the unreliable narrator. I find that it is too often used as a cheap escape hatch. Unless it's built into the structure of the story um, that events may be different from how we have perceived them to be. Mm. I think revealing that later on or, or reading it differently in retrospect, I I just think, well, yeah, but the film, it's not a true story. Film so, critics are rather too fond of that sort of thing, aren't they? Not uh, reading behind the text. I'm trying, and to, imagining... think of, I'm trying to think of a, um, a, a film which has used that well, where there's, oh, um, Fight Club. Yeah, it's, it's more common nowadays, isn't it, than it was in this era. That's why I'm not sure yeah. about that reading. I mean, Fight Club, it works extremely well because the reveal that, that the narrator is actually... that There is there is no other character. The, the, the other character's best friend is just part of his imagination and he doesn't realise this until later on. And then that completely reshapes the structure of the film and the point of the film. That's, I think, a, a version of it working extremely well. There's nothing in Detour that suggests that it's that he's not telling the truth. Why would he be lying to us? Exactly. Can we come back to that later? Because I don't really believe it either, but I've, I've had done a bit of thinking about it because I have seen some other critics suggesting that that's their reading. So, um, A cop does stop by the car as he's putting the top up, but um, he manages to uh, talk his way out of it. And um, I've written, L and R at, at the state line. Now, what's L and R? Hmm. Because there are no characters with those initials. Uh, oh. We've only had three characters so far in the movie. At, at, at that point, where he's stopped by the policeman. Yes, I think it's... Because it made me realise... He that... says he's only 60 miles from the state line at that point. Um, yes. And... and a major issue, of course, is this film was made during World War Two. Something that's never mentioned at any point in the movie, because it's not relevant. But I thought... Yeah, there would be security checks at state lines, just as a matter of course, because you know, there could be saboteurs or secret agents or, or goodness knows what. So yeah, checking people's IDs at the state line, that seems perfectly sensible, which is why he avoids heading for the state line straight away. Hmm. And I notice at this point that the 
Arizona bordering into California is where Psycho is set. <laughs> is it? Cause I, I did get Psycho flashback to that point because, of course, the, it's not quite as um, as artistic as the as the supernatural-looking policeman who looms down on uh, on Janet Lee and when she's trying to make her escape. Is it? But yeah. uh, but it's that same sort of feeling. It's ever-present danger in all in all crime road trips, isn't it? Well, uh, Alfred Hitchcock had a pathological fear of the police, which is why I think in all his films, none of his heroes are ever detectives or police officers. I think except Frenzy is the only one I can think of offhand. And even then, the protagonist of the film, is the the, the major character of the film, is a serial killer. So uh, Al goes to a, a nearby motel to get some sleep, and he has a nightmare... I think and uh, I've written he's he's already living in a nightmare. Hmm. It's interesting because you've mentioned the the, uh, the very artistic looking dream sequence. We don't get an equally artistic nightmare sequence here. It's just made up of um, clips we've already seen. I don't think it's relevant. It's probably just yeah. <laughs> a budgetary thing. He's woken by the maid the following morning, and as he's washing, he thinks about how he can pass for Haskell and goes through Haskell's things and discovers that Haskell was writing a letter to his own father hoping to raise money to uh, sell Bibles. And that lets him justify himself that, oh, well, Haskell was going to try and rip off his own father with this scheme, so I'm saving him. I'm, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the good guy by not allowing that scheme to go ahead. Me and my lucky rock. We've, yeah. we've done some good in the world. He's, he's, I mean, it's not the unreliable narrator exactly, but he's almost trying to reframe the story so yeah. that he's actually a hero. Yeah. And the other guy was a piece of cheese. Yeah. Mm. A real Charlie Choo Choo. <laughs> um, he pulls in at a gas station and offers a ride to a woman who happens to be there. And um, I think uh, in the narration, I think he mentions that she looks like she was thrown off the crummiest freight train. And that she has the kind of beauty you dream about when you're with your wife. Hmm. Even though she looks... And she's an attractive woman, but you can tell how mean and unpleasant she is just from the constant sneer on her face. As Ebert describes, her expression does not move from one of contempt for the rest of the film. I didn't notice it for the first few minutes um, when I first watched it. I thought she was just tired or suspicious... But um, looking back on it, the look she's giving him when he first calls her over from the car, which she obviously recognises quite clearly, yeah, has a completely different meaning when you realise what it is she's thinking. And this is Vera, played by Anne Savage. Um, again, an actress who had been in a number of minor productions, retired from acting in the late 50s, had a one-movie comeback in 2007 when she starred in Guy, uh, Guy Madden's My Winnipeg, a film that was a commercial, a critical sensation, and she was introduced to Spielberg and Scorsese and looked at the possibility of a very late-in-life uh, comeback, but sadly died the following year. Oh, dear. Well, sooner dying one one year after that comeback than one year before. Let's look on the yeah. bright side. I mean, it's just out of nowhere, suddenly, back on top. 
And did Scorsese and Spielberg only want to talk about Detour? <laughs> because they're sort of film nerds who I can imagine being very excited by them. I can imagine so, yeah. They would have been thrilled to finally meet the evil Vera. Mm. Say that almost like she's the, the television from Will of the Wisp. No, that was Edna, wasn't it? In my Googling, I saw somebody very excitedly put her in the top 25 movie villains of all time. <laughs> Maybe I mean, overstating it slightly. Yes, I mean, but she is a, a great character because... So relentless, she's, isn't it? She's, she's a terrible person. <laughs> but you can understand every choice she makes. Every, every manipulation she makes of Al for the rest of the film is totally comprehensible and not necessarily reasonable, but you can understand why. At the beginning of the Shawshank Redemption, there's a great line in the prosecutor's summing up in the, the case against Andy Dufresne, where he's talking about Andy having allegedly shot his wife and her lover, where he says, if this had been a crime of passion committed in the, the heat of the moment, then it could be understood, though not condoned. And I think that's the the key with these characters. You can understand why they're making every choice, even if you don't condone it. But you think, I understand why, and if I was in that situation, maybe I would do the same thing. Nothing rings. I, I know nothing, how they've reached that point. Nothing rings false, does it? Which is kind of what I meant earlier about the sort of low-level naturalism of their, the, the way the characters interact. I mean, just to skip ahead a bit, when uh, <laughs> when she appears to be propositioning Al, and he says, "Oh, I love you." And you think for a split second that perhaps this movie's taking a, a, a left turn into more conventional territory, but it isn't. No, it's, uh, he just he tells her to sling a hook. Yeah. I mean, they, they even actually mention, oh, if this were a movie, this is what would, would happen. <laughs> yes, that's right. Which I thought was, well, this is, <laughs> this is getting out of hand. Isn't that what the kids call hanging a lampshade on it? I believe so. I mean, okay. we will get to that as well. But I think that's that's the point we think. Yeah, this is a lot darker and weirder than a lot of movies were being made at the time. Even like the Maltese Falcon is set in a cheerier universe. Hmm. So yes, back at the beginning. Um, but um, Vera is heading for Los Angeles as well, and she's very sardonic, and she suddenly comes out with the line, "So, where did you leave his body?" I liked that bit. That was slightly terrifying. I think I was getting a bit complacent, and the way she snaps her head round and barks the question at him is very well done, I thought. And it turns out she recognises the car because she'd had a lift from Haskell earlier, and she was the one who had caused the scratches on his hand. And she'd managed to get another lift and overtake Al while he was staying at the hotel. So now it enters this kind of gothic realm with the ghost of Haskell still almost haunting the movie and fate continuing to punish him. Now he's now fate's thrown this woman into his path. He thinks he's got away with it all or at least a bit of a reprieve but no, here's another obstacle. Here's, some, here's another thing that will stop you escaping this trap. But Vera says that she's not going to just hand him over to the police because she wants money. Um, Haskell was a scammer who had no real money of his own, and Vera calls him a cheap crook. But 
she also says that if they just dump the car when they get to Los Angeles, the police will be able to trace it. So what they need to do instead is sell it on to a second-hand dealer. Yep. Yet again, clearly explaining why they make these wrong moves that lead them further and further. It's all, it's all and... being thought through. All the decisions are totally reasonable, totally logical. Of course, these two very different people agree that on one thing only, the logic of why they need to take certain moves. Yes, yeah, sometimes she make later on she makes suggestions that he doesn't go along with, but it is at the beginning here. He may not like it, but he knows she's right. And, and, it's, and it's not that different from the decisions he's already made to justify. No, it's just rather it shady behaviour. It's just leading him further and further down the rabbit hole. And he, as he says, Sue seems further away than ever now. <laughs> so the plan involves, once they arrive in Los Angeles, and their plan is to rent an apartment so that there will be a legal address they can use to sell the car. And it's kind of a dump. It's got this revolving Murphy bed in the wall. And someone's practicing the saxophone. So we've got the saxophone <laughs> music, which... I didn't realise at first wasn't just on the soundtrack. It's actually just like the guy in the next room is practicing the saxophone. So we've got this sleazy saxophone music Diagetic playing over saxophone. all these scenes now. And the apartment, which is basically just one room, becomes this absolute pressure cooker of tension and hatred between these two people. Vera uh, makes a show of agreeing with Al that he didn't mean to kill Haskell but she says it's, she's just doing it to be sociable because they have to they have to live together for the time being so it, she's just flat out accusing him of murder really for no for no reason for no justification because his his explanation I think is it's believable, but it's just stretched slightly too much. How much it's of just... that is pro- projection? Because she has is a fairly shady, amoral person, and how much? And she just can't believe that, on the balance of probabilities, other people wouldn't be the same as her. I think because the and film how... is in a this this cold, unyielding universe, that that everyone is out for themselves. So she mm. so she is going uh, the same reason that Al assumed the police would just accuse him of murder. Hmm. She is assuming that he did it. Because, of course he would have done it. Because that's the kind of world they live in. That's an interesting parallel, because the good guys would assume he was a murderer, and so would would somebody at the opposite end of the social scale. Is she actually a crook? Do we, know, we don't know anything about her background before they bump no, into each other, she... do we? But uh, what her behaviour afterwards... Suggest that she's that, familiar with this sort of thing. We know that she's totally unscrupulous. Mm. And that she's very happy to enter into a criminal enterprise if she thinks that she'll make money out of it. So, although we've no reason to believe that she's a crook, we've definitely got no reason to disbelieve. And it's interesting to imagine what exactly transpired between her and Haskell led to the fight. We, we don't know. We had shades of it from him. We don't get any more information from her, but we can... That must have been a hell of a, a catfight between those two. The two There's most not... amoral people in the in the film. There doesn't seem to be a mark on her. Hmm. Not that that necessarily means anything. 
of course. But you couldn't really say much because of the Hayes code at the time, but I could easily assume that if Haskell is really a cheap crook, as she says, and as we're led to believe, he could have tried it on with her and she would have fought back. Well, he does have a little, um, does give a little speech about his view of women, which, to be fair to Al Roberts, Al doesn't encourage him in any way. He just looks rather embarrassed and just keeps saying, yep, yep, as as Hassel keeps saying things that presumably he doesn't believe it at all. Yes, I've had similar conversations with my landlady about foreign <laughs> people. So, yes, yes, whatever you say, can I leave the room now? It's a tiny little moment, which isn't really relevant to the plot, but it does contribute to the, making Roberts look rather passive. He's so... He's not just being pushed around by the heavy hand of fate, but he's too passive even to stand up against people who are just being low-level unpleasant. He, he can't say, well, no, I think that's going a bit too far. I don't believe that. He just sort of goes along with him. He hasn't any reason to fear this man. He just wants not to rock the boat yeah. so he can get where he's going. I mean, that's the thing. Haskell is generally... seems like a nice guy. You know, relatively generous and friendly. But he's also a horrible bigot. <laughs> um, but I think that that also points towards the theme of Al not taking responsibility in his life. He doesn't like working at the nightclub. He doesn't want to move to California. So mm. now Fate's saying, "Okay, now you're going to yeah. have to do something." Passive, like yeah, both likes and dislikes the status quo. He's he's being punished for his inability to do anything, for his refusal to actually separate from the status quo as you say yeah and he won't take a stand even on anything something small in um in the narration he says that he compares himself to someone who knows they're dying as if someone knows that they're dying then they have that certainty um they know their time is running out whereas al doesn't know if the police are after him or not he he has that that paranoia and that suspicion hanging over him, but he doesn't know if anyone else feels that. He might have got away with everything scot-free, but he'll never know. And it's that uncertainty that is... that's the thing that's killing him. Uh, they plan to get up early the following day to go to the used car lots, and Al mentions that he doesn't want Vera to die, but he absolutely doesn't like her. <laughs> and at that point she's she makes a pass at him and he very firmly closes that door I think that's the beginning of the end for their relationship isn't it yeah well, because she could put up with a lot from him but not rejection not from a worm like him no I mean that's the way that these unscrupulous women would typically um, control men in film noir is through sex yeah so the fact that he just just without any uh second thought just no that's off the table you but also control me that way there's nothing noble about it you don't really get the sense that his primary motive is because he's saved himself for sue or because or because it's just because she's so awful and the situation's so awful it's just yeah. rather matter-of-fact decision rather than anything a great stand he's taking or that he doesn't want to give her something that she wants, which is that uh, it's, it's sex or control over him or whatever it is that she wants out of it. 
he's not going to accede to her demand because she's already controlling so much of him. Mm. He makes a phone call to Sue, uh, but doesn't speak uh, when she answers the phone. And it's at that point that he thinks about, well, if this was a, a picture, then it would end with Vera dying and Sue and I crying over her grave. <laughs> but then he wakes up the following day and he feels just as rotten as he did the night before. <laughs> but yeah, this, is, this isn't a movie, this is real life. This is your life now, mate. Vera gets very aggressive with a salesman they talk to about the price for the car um, and refuses to compromise. And the salesman also asks about insurance that the car has. And of course Al has no idea. Uh, but Vera manages to twist the conversation away and bail him out. Again, it's not a nice little, fairly realistic moment. We can. It seems plausible that they would think they could get away with selling this car because people do that all the time in road trip. Uh, this is a fairly standard trope of these sorts of things. The crooks sell their car at the first opportunity and buy another one, and it always looks so easy in the movies, doesn't it? And yet, and at the very first hurdle, he falls down with some. And it's something that happens in Psycho. Yes. Of she trades her car in and yeah. it's done in about you know, 10 minutes. <laughs> the difference there, of course, is that it is her own car, but it, it's portrayed as a very quick, simple um, transaction. And, and then we get on with the rest of the movie. And of course, that whole thing turns out to be a complete red herring because Psycho is a work of genius. <laughs> they, pull a, they pull in at a diner to... Um, refuel themselves and Vera notices the story in the newspaper that Haskell Senior is dead and that Haskell Junior, the man who they travelled with, is being sought with regard to Haskell Senior's will and this gives Vera another idea that Al should travel to the Haskell estate and pretend to be Haskell still in order to get hold of whatever inheritance it is in a different sort of film, this would be the start of the big third act. This would be the the plot ramping up and to, to bigger and more exciting and melodramatic things. And we'd it, it, uh, you know it'd take a detour into a heist film or something, and we'd be on the edge of our seats. But I mean, yeah, it, it, could, it could go anywhere at this point. These two people who hate each other working together to make money would be a great romantic comedy thriller. Um, but ha but Al immediately says. Well, no, this is a terrible idea. I know nothing about <laughs> Haskell, and neither do you. We'll, we'll never, ever even imagine getting away with this. This is crazy. But Vera is too entranced by the idea of whatever riches might be sought out. And I think Al mentions, yeah, he's wanted in connection with the will. No mention of money. No mention of inheritance. Isn't she babbling on about $15 million? Does that come straight out of a... I think I think that's guesswork on her mm. part, but because it says yeah, it could be, you know, there could be something terrible in, in the will. Like it could be some kind of reveal of information that you know maybe, maybe Haskell Junior was trying to murder his father and he's been cut out of the will and and there's evidence in the in the lawyer's possession. You know, it could be it could be anything, but Vera assumes that he'll come to her way of thinking. Um, trying to decipher what I've written again. <laughs> I 
Well, they go back to the apartment again, and they're still arguing about it. Al thinks that if he's caught by the police, then he might just tell them everything. Oh, no, maybe it's Vera who thinks that. Maybe it's Vera thinks Al would talk, because there's the concern over what would happen to him eventually, that he might actually wind up being executed. I can't remember exactly at what point she says this, but I've made a note. She says, that's the trouble with you, Roberts. All you do is bellyache. Which I thought I took out because that seems like a fair summary of his character. Even though she's not the most reliable witness. He hasn't got the most neutral perspective. She's right. All yeah. he does is bellyache. Um, but um, they they carry on arguing and eventually he just dares her to call the police. So she starts to dial and the argument ramps up and Al maintains that he doesn't know anything about Haskell and that he wouldn't be able to fake anything. And he's also been drinking heavily. I think they've both been drinking quite heavily. Um, and as he steps away to open a window to get some fresh air, Vera grabs the phone and runs into the next room, slamming the door behind her, and turns around and starts to um, get the phone to, to dial a number and manages to get the cord tangled around her neck. So Al, Al on the other side of the door is pleading with her and starts pulling on the cord to try and get the, the, the phone away from her or at least pull the cord out of the back of the receiver. And it all just goes quiet in the next room. And eventually he kicks the door down and discovers that Vera is now dead, having been strangled by the telephone cord. I thought that was pulled off very well. Um, it's on paper. That must that must seem like a very difficult thing to visualise. It's easy to write. Oh yes, and she accidentally gets the cord around her neck. But it happens without you thinking. When she collapses on the bed and gets into that ungainly position with the telephone, you don't think. Oh hello, I can see where this is going. This is a setup. That looks a bit. It's a bit obvious. No, it's still it leading into looks... that naturalism that you mentioned. Mm. Nothing. Nothing strikes you as phony or false or contrived. It's all a, a completely believable sequence of events. And that's what, that's what makes it, I think, so unnerving. There, there but for the grace of whoever, go we. Yeah. Because of the whole situation, Al is now convinced that if, if this is found out, he, he'll be convicted. He's, he's for the... These were the firing squad for sure. They'll believe it was premeditated. The um, the car salesman will remember him. They'll be you know they'll be able to trace Haskell and and all of that, and it all falls fall into place. And you see his thought process as the camera pans around Vera's bedroom, and we see all these various clues, the the shopping they've done with with the um, the money they've got. Um, he thinks about all the witnesses that could trace them. The woman in the diner as well who saw them argue. And he realises that he won't be able to cover it up and escape a second time. So he just quietly picks up his things and walks out and clocks the door behind him. Decides to travel back from Los Angeles all the way back to New York and just to try and forget that any of this ever happened. Is he heading for New York? I I got the impression that he couldn't. There's no future for him in Los Angeles because of all the witnesses and 
he couldn't go back to New York because, oh, maybe I misunderstood, because Al Roberts is dead. I thought he was just wondering, thinking he was going to be lost in some no-man's land between the life he knew and and the life he'd been trying to escape to. I'm sure I you're right. I, may... I don't know. But he also says that he hopes Sue will be happy. Hmm. Sue is the the one good cat. I mean, she's not even that good a character, really. I mean, she's a singer who's trying to make it in Hollywood, and she's working as a waitress, and she doesn't want to get married to someone who's not successful. No, she well exa- at the very beginning she makes it sound like a balanced decision. We both need to be successful be- because it's not fair on either of us to settle down in this with the crummy lives we have now. But. Is it more that she doesn't want him while, while he's? She, I think she's she's chasing that dream of stardom and maybe she. Although Al is think, important to her, she's putting her ambition above yeah, their relationship. She, she pretends that it's a means to an end, but actually, I think it's an end in itself for her, which is perf- which is fine. But um, perhaps he suspects that it does well, tie in with Al continuing to be passive because he's the passive one in that relationship as well. Well, good luck, Sue. Yeah, I mean, maybe she'll be successful. It doesn't really matter anymore. And we um, we move back to the present where Al's in the diner, heading for Nevada. And it turns out that the police are now looking for Haskell in connection with Vera's death. And, as he puts it, the police are looking for the man that I have created. <laughs> and he wonders... What will happen in the future? That someday a car will stop and he sees himself walking by the side of the road until a police car pulls up and a policeman ushers him into the back seat. Oh, you think that's clearly supposed to be a another vision of a possible was, future? rather it, than... was, it was actually added in post-production because, yeah. again, the Hayes Code decrees that criminals cannot be seen to get away with their crimes. So having this kind of flash forward of Al eventually being arrested was a way of saying, oh, he's going to be punished. It was just that sort of fig leaf. But the idea of having the rest of the movie being a flashback, now that's just a little flash forward on the end. Yeah. It's not, it's, yeah. It's not necessary, is it? It doesn't really add anything to the film. It kind of undercuts the power of the ending which I would have gone with, that he's just lost now. No no hope he's, of getting back to the normal life he craved. Yeah, he's 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 in a he's in limbo uh, between his old life and yep. and something else. Geographically as well, I like that. If um, if that if I didn't just invent that. But I mean it feels like at, uh, forcing a contrived downer ending on the <laughs> not down I mean, it's already a downer ending, but forcing a contrived negative resolution on this is as bad as forcing a happy ending on Brazil. It's the um, same thing in mm. from the other side. Well, it's, yeah, it's as, but... it's as bad as having Al and Sue weeping by Vera's graveside. <laughs> yes, it's kind of conventional um, moment, which they've avoided it, all the way through, it's... and it's the only point that which rings false, really. But the film as a whole is... It seems like a deliberate subversion of all the ho- of the Hollywood clichés. Mm. The good, you know, he's the hero is not a good guy. He doesn't end up with the girl. He winds up on the run for uh, for two murders, one of which was an accident, and well, actually both of which were accidents. Yeah, 
But as he says in the narration at the end, sometimes the fate can put a finger on you and there is nothing you can do. Whichever way you turn, fate sticks out its foot to trip you up. Yeah. What a message. And and that's it. I mean, it's, it's a tight little film. One hour and eight minutes. I think it's the shortest film I've covered on the podcast. Um... But I I really liked it. I did. Um, I think if it had been any longer, with that would have diluted some of the power of what makes it unusual. I mean, it if has... it tried to if it tried to keep out the relentless, but that is inexorable but very slow decline over much longer, it might have started to seem even a bit too contrived. Yes, and that's the thing that it, it avoids seeming contrived because every step follows from the previous one. I keep saying this, but it's 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 so believable in the sequence of events. It manages to be surprising without pulling things out of its ass, as again the young people say. No, the the reveal all... that Vera knows who Haskell is. It's it it could be a contrivance, but because of the idea of fate having singled Al out, mm, mm. it fits in with the overall theme of the film. So I think well. It works in, t- in sort of thematic terms. It has that existentialism, it, which, which most film noir has, but it treats it in a different, in a different way. It strips away most of the other tropes of the genre and just concentrates on, on the balance between <laughs> the very unrealistic existential uh, fate, singling out one ordinary man, one everyman, but treated completely straight. Hmm. Hmm. Almost like the Inter- interesting know, the, mix. Almost like almost like the Book of Job with God deciding to torture one lone individual. <laughs> so this one figure has been pushed into this terrible dilemma without any solu- seemingly without any solution. If he was, he, mm, if he was any less of an everyman, if he had more moral fibre or more agency or was more obviously noble rather than just not a bad person then again the story wouldn't go the same direction would it it's both a ward it's both a a, a excuse for us to say what would i do differently but we can also distance ourselves enough from him by thinking perhaps he's brought some of this on himself by being too is this is this rolling over is this his cosmic punishment for not taking enough agency in his own life? That, well, you could have, you could have seized the initiative and, and done something to move your life forward in any direction, but you didn't. So all the suffering in the world is going to be piled on your shoulders and there is nothing you can do about it. Now, flashbacks in film noir are a fairly common device, aren't they? Sometimes they're just odd flashbacks that pop up throughout the film um, as part of the investigation. And the other, but the other main type of flashback is the confessional flashback where large parts of the entire film are looking... We see the, or get a hint of where the story's ended up as a film opens, and then it moves into flashback and shows how we got that. That's not an unusual device in itself. No. Um, but do you think there's anything any implication that um, we, because he's everything we're seeing, the entire story, apart from where it ends in the motel, 
is filtered through his narration. Do you think there's any suggestion that we shouldn't believe all the facts he's giving us? I know you, you I think you think we should go as far as spotting that he's putting a, the most positive gloss spin on this story that he can. But you don't think he's actually... I don't think it's a matter of telling things that aren't true. I think it's mm. a matter of he's seeing the story in retrospect. So it's going to be through that cynical gauze that much more grim downbeat attitude that he has. So maybe Vera isn't as much of a monster as she's portrayed. Maybe Sue was more, Not as casual, much an more casual in their relationship. But he's given that the edge he's given to the story makes her a bit more a bit more of a perhaps more of an angelic figure, someone who could have saved him from this 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 hell of his own making. So there's few ambiguities and Yes, it, it's I'll I'll open up the space for it to be rewatchable, I think. It has he, that that mood and that that great dialogue, that wonderful crackling film noir dialogue. <laughs> that um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely one to to rewatch, and it's I get it. It has that central um, that central dilemma, that central situation that he's in, asking the audience, "Well, what would you do if if fate put the finger on you?" How would you react? What would you do differently? I think that—that's, I think, that's something that's helped it last, because it's kind of an evergreen situation. The fact that it's, you know, it has that vague World War Two background. That's not really important to the story. The kind of story is overall timeless, in the way that you could remake it in 1992, and you could pretty much do it exactly the same, and you could probably do it now and do it exactly the same. There's maybe one or two modifications for the passage of time. It's an evergreen story, I think. And produced by people who know how to just add little ticks and quirks to make it visually interesting and visually engaging. And with the right actors to portray the right kind of archetypes. It's a very lean, tight, focused story it's a morality play without a moral good one i like that i'll put that on the poster thanks to paul for making time for this recording cinema limbo is now on apple Podcasts, google podcast and acast with over 90 episodes available so please download review and subscribe we're also on youtube on twitter at cinema underscore limbo and podnose is also on patreon so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs However, until next time, fate or some other mysterious force can put the finger on you or me for no good reason at all. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.